If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to uh, Psalm 126, right smack dab in the middle of your Bible, you'll find it. That's where we're at this morning. Um, In case you are visiting with us and you are wondering, um, no, this is not our normal setup. We don't generally have the carriage in the back, um, the lighting. Uh, thankfully, Peter took took down some of the some of the uh, the balcony here, so we could actually project this morning. Um, that's all. Hey, come to the town hall meeting tonight, and um, we can talk about not renting anymore. That would be great. Um, so, what we've been doing over the last several weeks, and we're going to keep doing it uh, over the next, is walking through these things called the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms are is basically like. A, it's a songbook in the middle of your Bible, uh, the tunes of which we no longer know. But there was kind of uh, Israel's uh, hymnal, for lack of a better word, uh, that actually was inspired by God. And, and there's a section of them that, were call, that are called the Psalms of Ascent, were the songs that were sung by um, pilgrims going from their hometown to Jerusalem uh, the, during the, the major festivals of uh, of the Old Testament, things like Passover, things like that. And so one of the things that we've been saying as we've been talking about these is that these Psalms help us learn what it means to be on pilgrimage, to be those that haven't arrived yet, because none of us have. None of us have arrived in this perfect place with our relationship with God, no matter if you've been a Christian forever or, or you're not even one yet. None of us have... have um, Uh, kind of arrived at a place where our lives are together. Abe alluded to that. So how do we deal with life in the meantime? That's what these Psalms are meant to speak to us about. If you have your place in Psalm 126, let's stand. That's, That's our habit here. Stand in honor of God's word. And this is God's word for us this morning. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, open this morning, open our ears and our hearts and our eyes that we might hear from you, see you and receive you. Give us grace uh, to once again, whether for the first time or, or for the millionth time, to believe that Christ and his work is enough for us. Make yourself known. Show us your glory, and let that be all that we see. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. So my, uh, my family and I take an annual vacation to the Outer Banks. I know uh, many of you do the same. Um, my wife and I have been doing that uh, it, separately when we were kids, and then and now since we've been married, I mean, I, I've been doing it since at least middle school, um, which was, you know, when dinosaurs were roaming. And so we've been doing it a long time. Uh, and maybe you know this, when you, when you get a beach house, you know, you, you, you're, you're going online 
back in the day you had to get a catalog, but now you, you go online and, and you're, um, you're looking at all these places, you put in your search parameters, where you want it, and how many bedrooms you need, all that stuff, and a list of properties come up. And as you're going through the properties, they, they, they have pictures, right? And those pictures are like the best possible pictures you're ever going to get of these places. A couple years ago, we got a little late start on the whole beach house thing. And, you know, that was when the COVID lockdowns ended. So that was when everyone was like, get us out of our house as fast as possible. So everyone, if, you, if, if, if you've never been to the Outer Banks, you probably were two years ago. Uh, because that's just, it seemed like everyone was there. And so it was not the summer to be late to the game. But we were, but we found a house. It was, found a house. Pictures looked great. We showed up, pulled in. False bill of sale. Now, here's the thing about that, right? Like, you pull in, you are still in a paradise. I mean, the beach was not that far away. You could see it. We were, you could easily walk to, like, our house was right there. But, like, each of the, and, it, you know, it told us it had four bedrooms and two full baths. We're like, oh, this is great. What it didn't tell us is that every bathroom was a Jack and Jill. And that the, the, the house that seemed like it had a nice, airy, open space was, like, tiny. And I've got a lot of kids. And vacation's about getting a little more distance, right? <laughs> so after six hours in the car, we pull in to find out the house was considerably less than the nice pictures made it out to be. So like I said, don't get me wrong. We're still in paradise. But once we got there, we're already thinking about the next year. Literally, I think we walked in and my wife said, so next year, let's, um, this psalm looks to something similar to that. It looks to the, this concept that you're, you're there, but not exactly. You're, you're, you're where you want to be, but not everything is exactly as it could be, maybe even should be. And so what we're going to see this morning as we walk through the psalm is that ultimately for the Christian, our confidence in the future is grounded on a work of the past, right? Our confidence of the future is grounded on the work of the past. And if you're a note taker, there's, there's an outline in there. If not, don't worry about it. Let's, let's get started in here. And, and as we do so, let me just remind us, if you've been here the whole time, you're going to start getting sick of hearing some of this stuff, but it's really important, Okay. This is starting now our third cycle of these psalms. You remember we said that all of the psalms of ascent come grouped in threes. The first one gives you a point of distress. What is wrong? What am I feeling that's wrong? What is going on that is just causing me distress? The second, God's provision along the way. And the third, once I've arrived. What is different about this cycle is that all of them take place in the city. In other words, in Jerusalem, in Zion. That's normally the place that you eventually get to, but all of these take place in it. And that's important. It's important because even when you've arrived, you haven't arrived. At least not fully. And so if that's the case, if these if these cycles main kind of remain, maintain the pattern, we should expect this situation of distress, right? We'll look down at verse one. It says this, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. When the Lord. This is interesting because 
we're expecting a situation of distress, but we're given something that's already happened, right? What's being talked about is something in the past, the Lord restoring the fortunes of Zion, of Jerusalem. When you see Zion in the Old Testament, that just means Jerusalem. It's, it's the, the capital city, uh, um, the place where God's temple is. It's, it's like in, in the Jewish mindset in the, in the Old Testament, it's the center of the universe. So if, if, if something happened back in the day that the Lord restored fortunes, what did he have to restore? Well, scholars will tell you that this psalm was written after um, the return of God's people from exile. Now, I know that everyone is very familiar with the timeline of Israel's history, right? We all know what that means when I say exile, right? Everyone's like, oh yeah, sure, we get that. Well, let me tell you about it. God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt, okay? Brings them out in Exodus. And as he's coming into the land, you have, as they're on their way, the 40-year march, it went a little longer than originally had intended. They're, they're on their way into the land. And as that's happening, you have what, what are basically the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? We call that the Pentateuch, if you're, if you're a Bible nerd, okay? And so, Deuteronomy is basically this, um, the last of those books is this transition book that's going from what was going on under Moses to what's going to happen when they get into the land. And as they do that, most scholars believe that Deuteronomy is basically this big, long speech, really long. You think, you think I'm long-winded, like try reading Deuteronomy out loud this afternoon and see how long that takes you. Okay. So, so it's this big, long speech, and in it, it gives kind of the, the overview of what God has done. It gives his um, kind of the, now that he's rescued you, here's how life is supposed to be shaped. And then it gives, and here's what's going to happen if you, do, if, if you follow me, and here's what's going to happen if you don't. That last section we call, that, that generally call the section of blessings and curses, okay? And curses sounds really bad, either because you think it's cussing or because it's like what witches do, okay? That's not what it means. It just kind of means, it means like discipline, right? It's kind of like when you tell your kids, I need you to go clean your room. If you do it, maybe we're going to go get something or you'll get an allowance or whatever. And if you don't, right, it's discipline, and so the, the, at the end of this list of disciplines in, God's, in, in Deuteronomy, you have exile. And what exile was meant to be is kind of this last push of like, you guys just aren't getting it. And so I need to, to, to have you leave this land that I've given to you so that you will come to repentance. And so after hundreds of years of God's people turning away from him, eventually, after all of those other disciplines have been gone through, sure enough, what do you know? God kept his promise. It's time for the exile. And so in 586 BC, uh, the, the southern king of Judah was sent into exile. The worst possible thing you could imagine. We have a hard time connecting with that because we're like, what's the big deal? It's land. Think of it this way. This is not just a land. It is, it is a land that you were promised by God. It's, a, it's, it's the place where you know God's special presence dwells. Like I said, it's the center of the universe. And you're no longer there. However, 
God also keeping his promises brought his people back. Okay? He brings them back. And this is, so when, when we're, we're talking about the fact that the Lord had restored Zion's fortunes, that is to say that, that Zion was now re-inhabited. People lived there again. God had brought his people back from exile. He had he'd kind of restored them in the ways that he also promised to do. He had brought them back. Now look at their response. Look down at verses 2 to 3. Okay? Mouth filled with laughter, tongue shouts of joy, people talking about it amongst the nations. It's hard for us to understand this, but I want you to think through. Maybe, maybe you've had a, an experience more like this. When, when like you see someone you haven't seen for a while, Right? Like, they've been gone. Maybe you even, even, haven't even been able to be in touch with them, and you see them again. Maybe for some of you remember what it was like that first Sunday when we started doing in-person worship again after COVID was done, and it was like, oh, thank you. Thank you. So good to be back with everyone. It's kind of what's going on here. It's joy. And this, you have to understand, like, why were they rejoicing? Because they had been in exile forever. Like they had been in exile forever. And now they're back. And if the exile had ended, that meant that God's promises to restore the world were were going to happen. Everything was going to be made right now. Everything was going to be good. And there was joy there. So there's laughter. There's shouts of joy. They're telling the world what God has done. And that seems right, doesn't it? Like if God has reconciled you to himself and you knew that you you had blown it out of, the, out of the land, like pushed away from him because of what you'd done. And then he's restored you joy. It's awesomeness. But in verse four, things get weird. Look down, look down there. Because in verse four, he says, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Wait a minute. I, when their fortunes were restored, there was joy. Restore our fortunes. I thought it already happened. Like, what, what is going on here? Let's see, Let, let's talk about some of these things. So, we talked about the exile, right? Then you get in the, in the prophets, especially in, um, in, in the latter part of Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in some of the minor prophets. There are all these promises about what is going to happen when God does bring an end to the exile. And, and this, is, this really gets into, we'll see in a minute, what, what the promises of, of Jesus coming were about. But when, some of those promises were that God is going to obviously bring you back to the land. You're going to have the temple in your midst again. And oh, by the way, there's going to be a king from the line of David that will rule over you and not these Gentiles. But here's the funny thing. There's several books in the Old Testament that talk about what happened historically when they did return from exile. One of them is Nehemiah, right? I know everyone's super familiar with that. Actually, we preached on that not too long ago. Don't quote me on that. It was probably like three, four years ago, but who knows? I don't know. Things bleed together. But see, in in Nehemiah 9, Nehemiah is giving a prayer. And in it, one of the things he says is, he's standing in Jerusalem with God's people as he says this, and he says, Lord, we are slaves to this day. See, God's people had returned from exile, and yet things hadn't been made right yet. It was like they were living in this kind of netherworld of like, we're back, but we're not. We're redeemed, but we're not. 
we are, we are restored, but we're not. The fullness of their return has not yet happened. And so when they say, restore our fortunes, that's what he's talking about. It's almost like you have, now finish the job, please. Finish the job. Ever felt like that? Maybe you're a Christian, you've been been a Christian a long time. You ever just think to yourself like, man, Jesus, can you please finish the job? Can you please just finish the job in me? Can you finish the job in my marriage? Can you finish the job in my neighborhood? Like just, can you just finish the job in the world? I know I've had joy. I've had that restoration. I've felt that. Can you just, can you finish it? See, it just hasn't happened yet. But now let's look at some confidence. Look down at verses five and six. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. I want you to take note of the two times he says the word shall. So what's funny about that word is, um, and some of you who are more legally bent know this, like when something says shall, it's not might. It's not maybe. It's not um, if you feel like it. It's shall. Shall means this is going to happen. Not wishful thinking. Shall. The writer of this psalm is convinced that these things will happen. Those who sow in tears are, they will, they shall reap joy. It's not like a, I'm kind of hoping one day. It's not a, you know, kind of, I'm a little confident. This is like, it is going to happen. What is the basis of that? I mean, how do you, how do you end up going like, this is going to happen? Well, the basis of that is something different than we think. I mean, is it experience? Well, no, obviously it's not experience because their situation is so bad that they're going, restore our fortunes. It's not like, I mean, I look around the world and things just generally go good. Is that your experience? You look around and you go, you know, I think everything's going to play out all right. No problems here. Everything's fine. It's not experience. Experience generally, especially in, in our mindsets, generally point the opposite direction. Right? It's not wishful thinking. So what is the basis? Well, the basis is what God has already done. God already redeemed his people from Egypt. God already had sent them on exile and brought them back just as he said he would. The fact that he can go, I know this is going to happen is because this has already happened. I know God's going to finish the job because he began it in the first place. And when he began it, that had nothing to do with what we did. And if he, if he began it based on nothing that we did, then he's, he's going to finish it. God has already done this, and now he's promised to do more. I understand that my situation is not the way I want it to be. And things are not right. And, and, and especially, listen, listen, especially because this psalm specifically and particularly speaks to those who have experienced the redemption of God. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian yet, uh, or not a Christian. I just played my hand. I'm hoping, right? But um, that you're not a Christian 
listen, this, this psalm primarily, you get to listen in, because this psalm primarily is speaking to those who have experienced the redemption of God. They have experienced it. They know what it means to go from death to life, to have Jesus be their hope. They know what that means. And yet, they're pointing around, looking at themselves, looking at the world and going, Ugh! Ugh! Again! But the hope, or the... the we use hope weird, so I'm not going to use hope. But the confidence that things are going to change is not based on things pretty much turn out good in the end. It's based on the fact that God has begun a work and he will complete it. He began it based on nothing in us. He will complete it based on nothing in us. Now, here's where this meets us. This concept, this exile, I know some of us, as soon as I start talking about Old Testament history, I know some of us are going to glaze over. We're like, wake me at the application. Here we go. Here it is. This theme of exile is not just there in the Bible. It's not just right there and maybe in a psalm or two and talking about Israel getting kind of pushed out of the land and then brought back. It is everywhere. As a matter of fact, Israel's exile was meant to be an echo of one that was bigger. Think back to the beginning of the story. God creates the world good. Everything is perfect. He puts, he puts Adam and Eve, he puts them in this garden. And he says, you are here to execute my loving authority over the world. Take this garden, spread it everywhere. I'm going to walk with you in the middle of the day. It's going to be awesome. And then they turn away from him. They, they, they believe a lie. That lie being that God's not for you. He doesn't care about you. He's holding you back. Um, and he's just out to be a killjoy. It's basically the same thing we believe every day, right? And they believed that, and so they turned away from him. They betrayed him, and when they did, what happened? They were exiled. They were exiled from the garden. And in that moment, like when we had betrayed God, everything broke, and our relationship with him was fractured, not just by our actions, but now by our very being, our nature. So the exile that was going on with Israel wasn't just about Israel. It was about the world. It was showing that even if, even when you have the right rules and even when you have the right worship and you've got the word of God, even then something more needs to happen. And that, friends, is why Jesus came. Jesus came to bring an end to the exile that we experienced in the garden. He came to reconcile us to God and to deal with our sin. And so Jesus, on the cross, experienced our exile in our place. He cried out, right? He's on the cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Like it's, it's, he's experiencing what our sin deserves. And so when God rescues you, when he, when he makes you new, when he places, uh, And then you place your faith in Jesus. You're reconciled to God and brought back from that exile. But just like this psalm, our fortunes are not fully restored, are they? There's a tension. You still feel at times like God is distant. You still end up doing things you don't want to do, treating people in ways you don't want to. You blow up your kids, your spouse, your roommate, or your friends. You're just still broken. I feel it, don't you? 
theologians would call this the now and the not yet. What that means is that now, right now, you are redeemed. If you have your faith in Christ, your trust is in him, you are redeemed. You can never be more or less pleasing to God than you are right now. And yet, and yet, we still carry around this thing we call a sinful nature. Our love of God waxes and wanes. Sometimes you wake up and you're like, yeah, Jesus. And sometimes you're like, oh, Jesus. Like, this is what we do, right? This is what we do. The fullness of our redemption isn't quite here and it won't be until Jesus returns. So how do we live in this tension? Well, let me give you a couple things. Because what this, what this tension, what this understanding of the fact that our fortunes have been restored, but they're not quite yet restored is it pushes against a couple things. The first thing it pushes against is our pessimism. And that is because some of us are here this morning. Some of us are here and we believe that there is just stuff in our lives that we're going to have to resign ourselves to, right? Like we've convinced ourselves that whatever's going on in me or in the world that bugs me, like it's just never going to change. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's our anger, some compulsive behavior, but we just end up thinking this is just who I am. No, it isn't. It isn't who you are. If you know Jesus, the spirit of the living God is in you. The same power that rose Christ from the dead dwells in you. And I don't care if you've been addicted to something for a million years. I don't care if, if you can't get out of your head in your, in your relationships. It's just like you constantly break things around you. I, I don't care. The spirit of the living God is in you. Redemption is here right now. You're like, but I can't. Of course you can't. If it were based on you, you never could. You didn't save you. Why do you think you have to, you're the one who changes you. If it's based on you, you're right. It's hopeless, but it isn't. You didn't save you. You can't change you, but he did and he does. So it pushes against our pessimism, but it also pushes against our triumphalism. Here's what I mean by that. Triumphalism is the idea that you've arrived, that you've got it all worked out, that life is fine. This is the idea that you often get in a lot of churches. You walk in and everyone's like, I'm fine. Everything's good. We all look nice and everything's, it's fine here. Everything's fine. How are you? It's the idea that we won't and don't struggle with sin anymore, right? We ask for people to pray for things. It's not, please pray for me because I'm just struggling so bad with this. It's please pray for my mother's brother's big toe, which is fine to pray for. It's just not the only thing, right? And what this tells us is that our redemption is also not yet. Yes, You can change. The spirit of God does change us, but the problem is way worse than you think. The problem is way worse than you think. You think oftentimes what we end up thinking is the problem is my behavior. Yeah, but that's the easy part. The problem goes lower than that. It's our hearts 
And we will carry around this proclivity to be independent from God in our actions, thoughts, and our desires. For until Jesus comes back. So what does that mean? It means don't be surprised. It means don't be surprised. You will have healing here. You will. The spirit of God is at work healing you, but you will not have wholeness here. There will always be a sense of, I'm not quite home yet. I'm not quite there yet. Yes, I've experienced change. God has done great things in my life, but yet, not quite there yet. It keeps us hungering and longing for that. Because that will come when God makes all things new. And so it isn't strange that sometimes you feel like God is far away. It isn't strange that sometimes he opens your eyes to how bad you blow it. How bad I blow it. It isn't strange that you keep seeing your need for Christ more and more. That's not strange. That's normal. In fact, if that's not going on, I think you might, be, uh, you, you might need to question whether you're actually following Jesus or not. If that's not going on, if you're not going like, you know, I, if you're thinking to yourself, you're in here this morning, you're like, I've, you know what? I'm doing all right. Quit being so hard on me. I'm pretty good. I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm pretty good. I would say maybe spend some time this afternoon, especially asking God to show you your need. Because <laughs> maybe you've never seen it. We live in this now and not yet. We are reconciled to God and yet we still sin. We were made right before him, but still experience guilt and shame. We, we love him and yet, man, we turn away from him all the time. We have the spirit of God living in us and changing us and yet there's so much work left to do. It's just attention. And so how, how can we be confident then that this is, this is gonna be completed? I mean, how do we know? How do we know, Right? This is important because listen to me, if, you're, if, if your confidence is in you, you are lost, you're done. And, and I hate to be the one to tell you that, actually I don't, uh, not sorry either. Um, it might be hard to hear, there we go. It might be hard to hear, but it's true. If your confidence is in you, you're done. How do we know that we, are, that we experience in part what will be completed? Well, just like the psalm, our confidence is grounded in a work that's done in the past. If you're new to church and new to Christianity, I need you to listen in. This is, this is the point why I need you to listen, okay? See, in other religions, the founder of the religion is important, but not essential. Here's what I mean. In Islam, Muhammad is very important. He's the prophet. He's the final prophet in their minds. But he's not essential. Because if you remove him, you still have the Quran. What's essential is the Quran. What's essential is doing what the Quran says. Same thing's true with all the various types of, of Buddhism. It doesn't really matter what Buddha did. All that matters is that you do something similar and follow those teachings. But in, in Christianity, it's not the teachings of Jesus that are essential. They are important. But what is essential is what he did. Because if he didn't do it, we're done. All of those others place the emphasis on what you can do. Christianity places the emphasis on what has been done for you. 
Those things are going to push on you and say, here's the way to get back to God. And Christianity is telling you, here's what God did to get to you. Will you receive it or not? Now, will you do it? Will you trust it? So honestly, this is not about whether or not you make the cut. It's about trusting that Jesus is more than enough to make the cut for you. Because if Jesus didn't live perfectly, die sacrificially, and rise victoriously, then none of the rest of this matters. But if he did, the evidence is more than sufficient. If he did, then your fortunes can be restored through him. And that means that we can have full and final confidence in our full and final redemption. We can say shall because Jesus lives. We can say shall because he will carry on to completion what he began in his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the down payment of a new world. A new world that if you have faith in him, you will be a part of. And you can know for certain that that will be because of what he has already done. If you look to yourself and think, Am am I enough? Am am, am I showing enough? Here's the Christian way to do it. Is there enough fruit in my life? No, there isn't. Am am I, maybe I'm, I don't, I don't really want to have a quiet time today. Maybe, maybe I don't really know Jesus. Okay, maybe. Maybe just don't want to have, don't want to read the Bible today. Not saying that's, I'm not saying fine, just don't. I'm just saying like, your trust isn't in you. Your trust is in him. And if you're like, I'm not really sure if I, then, then just put your trust in him. <laughs> just do it. Just put your trust in him. You don't have to like, is there enough fruit in my life? Just, just trust him. Because if trusting, if you're trusting in Jesus, in what he did, how he lived, how he died, how he rose, then you have entered the now. And the not yet, you can be fully confident in. Because our confidence in the future It's not grounded in our present. It's grounded in a work that was done in the past. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we do ask that you would remind us of that all the time. Whether we're here this morning and and know Jesus and and many of us in this room do, and some of us in this room probably don't. and, And, but we, but we both need to be reminded of something that the issue is not how much we're growing, how good we're doing. It's you. And so Lord, help us to turn our hearts that are so sluggish to do this. Help us work in us that we would turn our hearts towards trusting in you, not in our fruit, not in our morality, but in you and trusting that the work that you began, you will bring to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Give us that grace. We beg for it, knowing that you are more than pleased to give it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.